Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Today is Wednesday. It's January 11th of 2012, and uh, our guest uh, this evening is Jeffrey Dywood. He's the author of World War D, and it's about the war on drugs and the path to controlled legalization. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. We're going to bring our guest on right away. Jeffrey, how are you doing this evening? Pretty good, pretty good. <coughs> good evening, everybody. Well, it's good to have you on the show. We're going to start right in. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the history of prohibition in the United States and the history of the prohibition laws of drugs, alcohol, etc. Yeah, prohibition actually started in the 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century in the U.S. And it started, that's pretty much where it started and spread to some part of the world. it started originally as a reaction to uh, what I call an epidemic of disease of excess that was created by the invention of industrial di- distillation. And I go into quite uh, into some detail in, in my book on how um, techno- technological uh, <clears throat> innovation can create disease of excess. So um, the first historical one is uh, alcohol. When people were used to drinking beer or wine with 6 to 12% alcohol, and suddenly they, uh, they were drinking stuff that were 40 to 50% alcohol, it created a big uh, addiction of, I mean, epidemic of addiction to alcohol. And at some point in some part of Europe, um, the rate of alcoholism was up to 50%. It's something that most people don't realize that um, prohibition um, uh, is really not the way to deal with this kind of situation. Uh, prohibition uh, doesn't address the issue of addiction. The addiction of, to alcohol decreased in Western country. Uh, not because of prohibition, but because of education and control and so on and so forth. But that's a parenthesis. Anyway, prohibition was part of the temperance movement, and then um, what we call drugs nowadays, which are men illegal drugs, were added to the prohibitionist agenda almost by accident. Uh, you have to realize that uh, in the 19th century, um, 
the active principle of um, herbs and uh, medicine were first insulated, so you had uh, penicillin and aspirin, of course, but you also had morphine and cocaine and heroin. And uh, when uh, opium was one of the bases of medicine to that, that time, and nowadays even opium derivatives are still extremely important in medicine. They are the best pain tools for pain management. But anyway, um, uh, as a parenthesis, by the way, in the 19th century and early 20th century, pretty much everybody had some opium-derived product in their pharmacy, in their own pharmacy. So whether it was uh, elixir paregoric and all kind of uh, preparation for cough and for diarrhea and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, most of these preparations had some amount of opium uh, or codeine or uh, whatever. Anyway, um, when people moved from opium to morphine and then later to heroin and from coca leaf or coca drinks like the famous Coca-Cola to cocaine, we get another disease of excess uh, which, and, and another epidemic of addiction uh, because uh, there is uh, people were not used to process this type of product. And uh, another example of a disease of excess would be junk food. Processed food is not easily, I mean, it's too easily assimilable by the body and create all kind of um, uh, catastrophic consequences. So, to go back to prohibition, so another thing that we can say about uh, illegal drugs and prohibition is that illegal, I mean, opium and cocaine and marijuana were added to the prohibitionist agenda as an alibi for racial discrimination. So there was first opium uh, prohibition in San Francisco and, and that spread all over the rest of the U.S. And uh, it was mostly directed to uh, the Chinese population. So it's kind of ironic that uh, heroin and uh, morphine were legal long after opium was uh, prohibited, which is really crazy when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And then cocaine was added to this uh, uh, prohibitionist agenda as an alibi for discrimination against the black population. And cocaine was used by the black population actually first uh, because um, black people were given cocaine to increase their uh, productivity in the fields. And then they later on they became uh, addicted to cocaine. And then marijuana uh, was an alibi for discrimination against Latinos. So we always at the origin of all of the um, illegal drug prohibition, we have a racial discrimination. Okay. 
I want to ask you a little bit about the the Harrison the Harrison Tax Act. I think that's 1914, and that's uh-huh. the first that's the first prohibition law. But how did a tax law become a prohibition law? Well, its interpretation uh, it, it was first, as you said, it was a tax law, and it would have never gone through probably at that time if people had known that it was that it was going to be a prohibition law. Um, but it was used. Um, I mean, first of all, they raised taxes. Uh, to a level that make it extremely prohibitive, and then people had to buy a permit. And uh, so it was just, a, they didn't give the permits even later on to doctors. Uh, doctors who wanted to treat addicted people or to provide addict, addicts with um, their doses of uh, heroin, or mostly heroin at the time, or some cocaine, uh, were prevented to do so uh, because um, addiction was not considered a disease. So it's, uh, it's, it was interpreted later on. It took like a few years. It, uh, I think it was around 1920, 1921, that they started using it as a law, but in the beginning it was not a prohibition law. And that's how they squeezed it in. It was a trick. But they started to use this to... Did they arrest doctors for prescribing uh, heroin or opiates to addicts? Yeah, they arrested doctors. They shut down the treatment centers and so on and so forth using the Arison uh, <coughs> Arison Tax Act uh, as uh, to, to close uh, these uh, treatment centers. And what did we see? I, I think there's a there's something called the British system where uh, the British were prescribing opiates to addicts, and was that successful? And what happened to that? Well, it was extremely successful, and it went on until the 1960s. And while uh, I think the whole um, UK in the early 1960s, there were something like 300. 300 addicts altogether. That's all. So, which was a fraction of what they had in New York alone. Mm-hmm. So, it was extremely successful. And then um, it received a lot of coverage in the U.S., and the U.S. government just couldn't tolerate that something that was uh, was working that was not prohibition, that was actually maintenance. Then uh, it should be noted that out of the 300 addicts, most of them were medical professionals. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, in, in Europe and in the U.S., actually, a lot of addicts in the early part of the 20th centuries were actually nurses and doctors or uh, doctor's wife and people related to the medical professional with easy access to morphine and heroin and uh, didn't necessarily control their use. Now, most people um, in the United States, because of the images we're given on television, we think that someone that's addicted to uh, an opiate would not be functional. They would not be able to do their job. But is this true, or is this just a falsehood? 
No, this is a complete uh, balloony of the propaganda. Um, people that were in uh, these programs in, in the UK were absolutely, most of them were functional. And nowadays there is an heroin maintenance program going on in Switzerland, and they get people to be functional again. Uh, I believe there is some something somewhat similar that has been going on in Canada uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in uh, Vancouver, uh, where it's not really, um, how should I say, it's more like safe um, injection rooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, they notice a very substantial decrease in uh, crime and in HIV, of course, and uh, people become more socially functional. Okay. Well, we saw under the British system there were about 300 addicts in all of Great Britain, but then the uh, United States exported the war on drugs into Great Britain, and what, what was the result? Uh, well, the population uh, grew very fast to 12,000 and 15,000 addicts. It should be noted, of course, that there was all 60s phenomenon. Uh, also, because of the publicity that was received by uh, the program in the UK, that went on actually, uh, they went on for a while while uh, prohibition was imposed on the UK, and a lot of um, addicts migrated from the US to the UK and kind of changed all uh, dynamic and the whole picture here. So of the 12 or 15,000 addicts that were uh, registered by the end of the 60s, um, there is no statistics on how many came from outside the UK but a substantial number came from outside the UK. Okay, you mentioned earlier that the beginnings of prohibition, there was a lot of racial discrimination. Do we see prohibition still uh, involved with racial discrimination today? Uh, It's 95% racial, (laughs) or 90% racial discrimination. I mean, uh, the, the rate of use of uh, illegal drugs is about the same within the white population, uh, the Latino population, and the black population, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the African-American population. Asian is somewhat different. Actually, Asian use different type of drugs. They tend to use more amphetamines. Um, and it depends on, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to bundle all of the Asians in the same basket because there is a vast difference between a Chinese and an Indian or Pakistani, for instance, or an Afghani, or, uh, or, and so on and so forth. So um, anyway, but if we look at the three major population, white, Hispanic, and African-American, it's pretty much the same rate of use and abuse. Still, um, African-American and Latino makes 70 to 80% of the jail population for drug, um, uh, for drug arrest and so on, drug-related uh, conviction. 
So we can see right away that there is a vast difference between the way um, a Caucasian and an African-American or Latino are going to be treated by the justice system. I mean, first of all, uh, there is a fact that um, most of the drug squads and uh, the drug uh, operation are take place in uh, in the ghetto and in the African American and Latin neighborhood. They don't take place in Beverly Hills. And still, um, if you go to any club or any party in Malibu, Beverly Hills, or South Central, you are just as likely to to get to find uh, at least um, cannabis, marijuana, and uh, probably some ecstasy, probably some amphetamine, some cocaine. I mean, you can knock down any, any, any door and find about the same amount, except that if cops were routinely knocking down doors in Beverly Hills or in Malibu, the law would change pretty fast. Yeah, I think that's true for sure. Uh, well, we're talking about harms now from the war on drugs. Certainly, imprisonment is a harm. And you know, how much imprisonment is there in the United States for drug use? Um, it's difficult. I mean, you get very wide estimates because um, for drug use per se, uh, I believe that the number of arrests is around 1.5 million per year. It doesn't mean that all of these people are going to end up in jail. Hmm. But then you have all this drug-related. Uh, there is an estimate, an estimation that 40 to 50 percent of the people in jail are in jail for drug-related uh, <clears throat> conviction. So which could be drug trafficking or drug-related violence or uh, drug use is uh, I mean, arrest for just drug use is less and less frequent because uh, cops are just tired of arresting people just for a couple of joints or a little bit of uh, heroin of, uh, or cocaine or whatever. Um, but still, it's, a, it's an extremely substantial amount of uh, the jail population is in jail for drug-related offenses. And we should say that the drug, I mean, the jail population in the U.S. went from 300,000 uh, inmates in the late 1960 to close to 2.5 million in 2010. So this is totally insane increase in the jail population. The, the U.S. has the highest, by far, the highest incarceration rate in the world. It has 25% of the world jail population. This is totally insane. And uh, there is no justification for some of that. I mean, the U.S. has turned into a police state thanks to the war on drug and thanks to the war on terror. So what is the solution? What is the road to uh, legalization, decriminalization? What should we do? 
Well, I think that um, the only long-term solution is control legalization. One thing that we need to make clear and that I try to explain quite in detail in, uh, in my book, uh, and by the way, there is a website for the book for people who are interested to check into, further into it. It's www.word-war-d.com. Anyway, um, one thing that we need to realize that is that prohibition always generate an illegal market. It's a law of supply and demand. Whenever there is a demand, there is going to be supply. And if the supply cannot be legal, it's going to be illegal. And then all of the perverse effects of the illegal market are uh, one of the main major arm of the war on drugs. So one thing that we need to realize is that Human, humans often operate in, in an altered state of mind and spend most of their waking life under the, the influence of a psychoactive substance. Most people don't realize that, but caffeine is the most used, commonly used psycho, psychoactive substance, and most people are under the effect of, of uh, caffeine or alcohol, or marijuana, or a stimulant, or tranquilizer, or prescription drugs whatsoever. It's actually an altered state of mind is the norm rather than the exception. And psychoactive substances act also as a social lubricant. I mean, whether it is alcohol, coffee, tea, or hashish, cannabis, marijuana, they are all used, they have their social purpose. Whenever we toast, you know, I mean, if Obama has a reception tomorrow, he's not going to serve tap water, he's going to serve some fine wine and uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if he goes to Asia, is going to be served tea, and when people who are familiar with Asian culture, you always sit down and drink tea before you do anything else. And uh, in, if you go to India, uh, you might be, or Afghanistan, it used to be that way like uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Whenever you, went going, you were going somewhere, you were offered uh, shilam or water pipe of uh, cannabis. And um, so the use of psychoactive substances is part of uh, the human nature. So there is nothing, I mean, uh, trying to, supri to suppress the use of some substances because most of, most of psychoactive substances are legal, whether it is, again, the caffeine products, including tea and coffee, or whether it is alcohol, or whether it is tobacco, or whether it is prescription drugs. So I would say 95%, if not 99%, of all psychoactive substances are legal. Why some psychoactive substances were marginalized and targeted um, is, has more to do with culture 
and the dominance of alcohol in uh, in the Western culture uh, than anything else. And uh, Western culture was a dominant culture in the 20th century when prohibition of illegal drugs was imposed. But another thing that I wanted to mention here before we got into how we can get out of this is for whatever reason, most users of, psycho of psychoactive substances, by the way, use them in a controlled and non-hazardous way. And users go through occasional episodes of abuse that may be semi-controlled or ritualized, which is the case with carnivals or backpacks on New Year's Eve, or if you go to India, you have the Kumbha Mela or the Holy Festival, where in the Kumbha Mela, a lot of people smoke uh, ashish all day long. And in the Holy Festival, which, which is the, uh, the most uh, revered festival in India, beloved festival, it's, very, it's a beautiful festival, actually. When I went to India years ago, I, I crossed into India the day of the Holy Festival, and it was such a, an incredible explosion of joy. Anyway, during the Holy Festival, people drink a drink of uh, ganja, which is uh, marijuana. It's a marijuana pre preparation. So now, <clears throat> a small minority of users go through binge use and uncontrolled abuse and a minority, a smaller minority become addicted. So really, what is the problem with uh, psychoactive substances, whether they are legal or illegal, is not the use, it's the abuse that can cause a problem. And if we go into the arm uh, aspect of it, arm reduction aspect of it, um, I should say, we, if we look at a lot of human activities, have some uh, cre can create some arms. Whether it is driving your car, whether whether it is having a gun in your house, whether it is the food you eat, uh, whether it's extreme extreme sport, and and so on and so forth, uh, most human activity have some potential dangers and can create some potential harm. So that's what we should focus on when we try to find a solution to uh, <clears throat> the prohibition on how to end prohibition and the harm caused by prohibition. So what I explain in my book is that the only long-term long solution is control regulation and you would control each substance depending on its potency and its potential danger and so on and so forth and its uh, mode of administration so i see that we have four minutes left so i'm going to try to go a little bit faster here to wrap it up um, if we talk about marijuana marijuana is really quite harmless, and I don't have the time to get into the detail of why, uh, how it acts on the brain, and so on and so forth, but for many reasons, it's uh, one of the less, least harmful 
substances out there. It's way less harmful than uh, alcohol or tobacco, for that matter. So a substance like marijuana should be pretty much regulated like alcohol or like tobacco with some substantial uh, restriction on promotion and so on and so forth. But um, <clears throat> it, it doesn't require uh, extreme uh, control and regulation. Then when we go on the other end of the spectrum with substances like heroin and cocaine and amphetamine, we need stronger regulation. What I propose in my book is a two-level of control here. One with register addict would get subsidized access for safe administration so that they would go in a specialized location which could be something like a clinic or health center or, or whatever where they would be given their uh, drug and where they would administer the drug on the site. Uh, one reason for that, which again I go in detail in, in the book, is that uh, injection especially is cont contagious and addiction is contagious. So, but the main reason why it is contagious is because when in a group of friends um, or in a social group, someone start injecting, then pretty soon it's very likely that the entire group will start, will start injecting. And it's interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine from that does a lot of work in Central Asia, in Tajikistan and Afghanistan and so on and so forth. And she was talking about this process where in one clan, someone would start injecting and then pretty soon the, everybody in the clan in the, uh, start injecting also. So it's true whether it is in Vancouver, New York, or Kabul, or uh, Ouagadougou, uh, because there is a lot of problem in Africa also. It's not only related, uh, Canton to the West. Anyway, so having a control, subsidized access to addicts, lower addiction and lower um, contamination and new, uh, I mean, um, new addictions. So then the, the other point is to, you don't want to um, keep a prohibition on non-addicts non because that would still feed a black market. So you want, the first thing is to get rid of the black market. Mm -hmm. So you put higher barrier, barrier of access to non-addicts so that they have to pay a pretty substantial price but still not so high that the black market will start flourishing. And then uh, you, you give subsidized access to the addicts. I mean, it's a, it's a nutshell. I know that we are running out of time. In a nutshell, that's pretty much what I, uh, what I propose. And of course, people need to read the book to get more detail on uh, uh, 
the solution that I propose. It cannot be encapsulated in a 30 minutes interview. Okay. Jeffrey Dywood, thank you very much for being our guest this evening. The book is called World War D. It's available from Amazon. There's the website. It was www.world-war-d.com or .org? .com. .com. Okay. So it's a very good book. I have a copy. I've been reading it. It's an excellent book, and, you know, we can't continue the drug war we've been the way we've been doing it. It's a total failure. We need a new solution. And I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. And next tomorrow, tomorrow we have another show. And tomorrow our first guest will be Dr. Pat Denning talking about the second edition of Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. It's a whole new book. It's excellent. I've been reading it. This is the this is the face of addiction treatment for the 21st century. And our second guest will be Gabriel, Gabrielle Glazer, who will be talking about her book, Uncorked, which will be released soon. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Hello, je te rappelle, hein?